0: Uh, Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Feast of Tabernacles 2020. And what a year this has been. This is being recorded in the middle of June, which is way before the Feast, of course. But we have to record these messages early so that we have the opportunity to translate them and distribute them properly. And it does take time to do so, and our staff whether it be translators or television staff, have to have time to work this in with all their other duties. So I don't know what the world is going to be exactly like by the time you see this. Who knows what will happen between now and when this is shown at the Feast of Tabernacles. And 2020 won't be over even after the Feast. So we might wonder what this year will be like. One thing for sure, it is like none other that any of us have experienced in this life at this time. And it is going to be a year to remember, or for some, maybe a year to forget, a year we'd like to forget. And yet we know that there are other times on the horizon that are going to be difficult, and yet this feast pictures a time of wonderful peace upon this earth when Jesus Christ is back here and we will be ruling with Him Uh, in the kingdom of God over mankind at that time. What a wonderful time this does picture. But we're here to keep the Feast of Tabernacles, of course, and this can be the best feast ever. I know that many are disappointed that we are not having as large of meetings as we normally do. We're as many people as uh, normal are meeting, I guess, although some may be staying home depending on what the conditions are at this time and uh, what one's health might be. But nevertheless, it's different than most years, and yet it can still be the best feast ever. We often use that expression, this was the best feast ever. And I'm here to say that it can be, depending on how we approach this feast. This evening, I want to trace a bit of the history of the Feast of Tabernacles in the modern era, and then answer the question, why are we here? a question that we hear often asked at these festivals at the very beginning. Concerning the early history of the, the uh, Feast of Tabernacles in this era, it began with two people, Mr. Herbert Armstrong and his wife Loma. And when Mr. Armstrong came to the understanding, the realization, that the Seventh-day Sabbath was the Sabbath Sabbath, Of God, the one that God had set aside, and that God did exist because he did study into the subject of evolution and creation. And he concluded, yes, there is a God. Yes, this book is His Word, and we ought to obey that Word. He recognized that not only the weekly Sabbath, but the annual Sabbath should be kept. And so, beginning in 1927 uh, to uh, 1933, Mr. Armstrong and his wife Loma kept these feasts, all the feasts that we read of in Scripture there in the 23rd chapter of the book of Leviticus, and they kept them together by themselves. Two people, that's all, just two people keeping them at that time. Now we know that the Jews, and we know that there are other groups around the world that had kept these days, but uh, I don't know any other group other than what came through Mr. Armstrong that understands the meaning of these days. And Mr. Armstrong didn't know what these days meant at that time. He just knew he needed to keep them. And as he kept these days and read about them in Scripture, he began to understand the meaning of these days. And you and I have the privilege of knowing what these days mean, how they portray God's plan of salvation for all of mankind, or... For at least for everybody to have that opportunity. Uh, he understood that, and we have that great privilege of knowing it because God worked in a very special way through that man and his wife. In 1934, uh, they began keeping the feast with others. Nineteen people all together in 1934. Think about that. That's less than a hundred years ago, and only nineteen people after seven years of Mr. Armstrong and his wife keeping the feast. In 1945, they kept the feast at a place called Belknap Mineral Springs, uh, and that was uh, seven years later, and it was a very small group of people still. Seven years later, in 1952, they moved to Siegler Springs in uh, central California, and it was still a very small group. It was uh, small enough. I don't know the exact number of people that were there. But it was a relatively small group, smaller probably than what you are celebrating the feast wherever you are. I know that some places are very small around the world. But uh, it was a, a relatively small group that was still keeping it. That was in 1952. But in 1953, Big Sandy, Texas opened up. And the church was growing, It was uh, the college had already started, and individuals like Dr. Meredith were going out on baptizing tours <clears throat> all across this country here in the United States, and the church was beginning to grow. It was beginning to expand. And there were many people who did not have a local church to go to, but they were able to come to Big Sandy uh, at that time where it was kept the one location. And Mr. Armstrong would speak uh, twice each day, and he would speak longer than what we normally are used to, Uh, at least uh, I hope it's longer than we are used to in these days, because we want our ministers to keep our service to a reasonable level. But Mr. Armstrong wanted to give them as much as he possibly could because these were people who didn't have a local congregation to attend in many cases. And that's why we had two services every day, from the beginning to the end of the feast, as well as the opening night service, which uh, we're celebrating right now. And by the way, I always love these first services. Even though it's a shorter service uh, and people are tired from traveling and getting adjusted and everything, there's excitement in the air on the opening night. And I know I always enjoyed it. My wife and I have both, and I don't think we've ever missed an opening night service in the years that we've been keeping the feast. At least I don't remember at this time having missed it and wouldn't want to miss it. In 1961, the church grew enough that we needed a second site. In addition to Big Sandy, Texas, Squaw Valley in uh, Northern California uh, near Lake Tahoe opened up for the church. And between Big Sandy and Squaw Valley, about 11,000 people were attending the feast at that time. Now, that's quite a bit of growth from two originally. In 1964, we needed a third site, and that was Jekyll Island in uh, Georgia. So we had a site in California, Squaw Valley, one right in the middle of the country in Big Sandy, and then on the east coast, of the United States, we had Jekyll Island, and it had grown to 25,000 people. In 1968, we built our own structure. Uh, we realized that it was difficult to meet in tents, large tents. Uh, weather could be an issue, as it often was in uh, Jekyll Island. And there were other uh, constraints upon the church, trying to find a place where we could meet for eight days that was sufficient in size and so forth, it was not easy to find places like that. So Mount Pocono opened up where we built a structure that would handle about 15,000 people. We never had 15,000 people at that or the other sites like it. But uh, it could handle that many, and usually it was somewhere around eight to ten or eleven thousand people at these locations. In 1969, Lake of the Ozarks opened up with a similar structure. Again, could hold about fifteen thousand, as I recall. I was there that that year, a very memorable feast for my wife and me because that's when I proposed to her, and uh, there were about eleven thousand people there and it was a watershed year and i'll explain in just a moment why that was but uh, in 1972 wisconsin dells opened up with a similar structure and we usually had about 8 or 9000 people there i don't know the high number or the low number but uh these structures could handle more people than we actually had and that was that was ideal that way In 1970, however, and this is an easy number to to remember, we had 70,000 people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles at 22 sites in 12 countries around the world. So we had expanded beyond the United States into other countries and... uh, Uh, We had one of our major sites there in 69 that opened up was uh, Penticton up in British Columbia. And I think they met in a tent up there, but that was one of our major sites as well. But in 1970, we made a change. We always had two services every day of the feast until that year. And the change was made as a result of what happened the year before in 1969, uh, primarily in Lake of the Ozarks. And I remember it very clearly that uh, those of us who happened to get out of the parking lot early, uh, shortly after service was over in the morning, had time to get out of the parking lot, to find a restaurant, to sit down, to eat a meal, to pay the tab, and to come back while others were still trying to get out of the parking lot. And it just didn't make sense to uh, put people through that that kind of a regime, and and those People oftentimes didn't even have time to get back in time for the beginning of the second service. So Mr. Armstrong and those that were making those decisions at that time in consultation with everybody decided that we'd have two services on the holy days and just one service the rest of the time. And a lot of people brought a a picnic lunch and ate out near their car uh, rather than trying to get out of the parking lot on those days. Uh, or maybe uh, took them back into the hall, uh, had a picnic. But uh, it was a change. And some people, of course, thought, that oh, the church is going Laodicean because we don't have two services every day, even though the Bible doesn't really say uh, exactly uh, how long or how many services we have, except that from day to day they kept the feast there in uh, uh, the book of Nehemiah, the eighth chapter. We read that. And they had certainly had a morning service on those days. So that was a, a bit of a change, but eventually the uh, the church grew to the point where we had more than 150,000 people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles in dozens of countries around the world. Uh, quite a, an undertaking, to say the least. And yet, when we look to the future, the whole world will be keeping the Feast of Tabernacles. And how wonderful that is going to be, And what a job that is going to be to plan for the feast under those circumstances. In the early years of the church, people came to the Feast of Tabernacles for one reason, one reason only. And that was to obey God and keep the feast. That was the the reason. And housing wasn't always very special. Uh, many people, many thousands of people kept the Feast of Tabernacles in tents because tabernacles means a tent or a temporary structure or a booth. And so many of us keep the feast in hotels or other places like that. They are temporary dwellings, temporary booths, you might say. But as time went by, the emphasis began to be more on how nice the booth would be because we looked at that side of the whole equation of time of great prosperity in the kingdom of God, uh, when the kingdom of God rules on this earth. And there began to be a bit of a change in that way. And then we began to look at different locations. Where can I go for the feast? And that became very important for people. And so the emphasis in the feast began to change somewhat, and it it changed gradually over a long period of time until there has settled in a certain approach toward the feast that may not be exactly what God is looking for. And it certainly is not what we had in times past. And I'm not saying this for everybody, but I'm saying there is that attitude that we do need to, to look at. So let me talk about why we are here. Mr. Herbert Armstrong asked that question virtually every time that we got together for any of the holy days. He'd say, why are we here? And he'd usually shout it out. And then he would explain, and we'd all think, okay, I know this. Uh, I've heard this before. Uh, we could, you know, take a nap. And we never really got the Understanding, received the understanding in many cases that we should have. Now, how can I say that? Well, very simply, there were over 150,000 people keeping the Feast of Tabernacles at one time. But after Mr. Armstrong's death, look what happened. Obviously, a lot of people, tens of thousands of people, never understood the message. And we need to realize that we, too, can be deceived just because we came out of the apostasy that set in after Mr. Armstrong's death, doesn't mean that we've made it. When we look at the lessons of the Exodus, they didn't all die at the same time. Some crises hit some people, some others. Sometimes people complained about one thing, and others didn't. But then something else came along, and they had their complaints. And so it is a long-distance race, and we haven't made it yet. And the Apostle Paul recognized that while he preached to others, he himself could be a castaway. So we asked the question again, why are we here? And I must ask another question that I'd like you to really think about, and that is, why must we ask this question year after year? Why do we have to ask this question year after year? Well, I've already, I think, given a hint on that. Because some look at the feast differently than maybe God intended for us to look at it. For some, and I'm not saying everyone, but for some, it's really become a travelogue, an opportunity to travel the world and see some new place year after year. For others, it's a family reunion. It's when we get together as our personal blood family uh, members uh, of our family, as opposed to just the family of God. Uh, For others, it's about a fancy condo. I've got to get my reservations in early because I want to get this very special condo. Now, are any of those things wrong in and of themselves? Is it wrong to see someplace new? Well, of course not. When we travel other places, it opens up our... Our, our minds to the world in a, a bigger way. We we see, we meet people and places and how they live and and uh, <clears throat> we see beautiful places. These are all uh, good things of and by themselves. Is it wrong to be with family? Well, of course not. I think we all like to be with family uh, at least once a year. We try to, and usually it's more than that. But for some of us, it's only once or, or maybe twice a year. We, because we are very spread out in our world today. Is it wrong to have a a fancy condominium to be able to keep the feast? Well, if we can afford it, there's nothing wrong with it. But what if we had to keep it in a tent? Or let me put it another way. What if we had to keep it in a cave? Because before it's over, the luxuries that we enjoy right now today are likely going to be taken from us if we live long enough. Because when the end of the age comes, when and we're really living in the end of the age, but when it comes time that persecution is so great and the church flees to a place of, of safety, as we often refer to it, into the wilderness. Notice, into the wilderness, as it says there in Revelation 12. It's not going to be as nice. And people say, well, yeah, but when that happens, I'll be ready. You know, the the greatest predictor of future behavior, of future attitudes, is how we approach things today. That's just a fact. And if we grumble, if we complain now, I can almost assure you that we will grumble and complain when things are not so easy. It's just a part of our human nature so it's one thing to be disappointed i know that some of you are disappointed because you didn't get to travel over here or there or in some cases maybe the family the whole family wasn't able to get together it's 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 a disappointment i understand that but when we made the decision regarding the feast of tabernacles for 2020 2020 not 2021 23456 and and so forth but for 2020 we made it for what we felt were very good reasons for the safety of the church, financially and in every other way, and also for the safety of the members of the church. Now, people might not understand that, but I hope that we can understand that God has not chosen each one of us to make every decision. We have to work together as a team, as a family, and we have to support the decisions that are made. So, although I understand that sometimes people are disappointed, uh, the, the the key here is attitude. It's always that way. What is our attitude? So, why do we keep the feast? What is the reason behind keeping the feast? Deuteronomy fourteen. Uh, we often turn to, and I'm not going to read all of it because I'm sure you'll have others who read uh, this to you before it's over, and I don't want to get into the tithing and all that sort of thing at this point. I just want to focus on verse 23 first and foremost, and that is, you shall eat before the eternal your God in the place where He chooses to make His name abide. Now, who decides where that is? Well, God has used His his servants, his ministry, to make that decision. It's not for everybody to to uh, just decide, well, I want to go here, I want to go there. Uh, that would be total chaos. Uh, there are personal decisions that each of us have to make in life. But when we're talking about the church as a whole, we have to do it in an organized way. And so he says there, in the place that he chooses to make his name abide, uh, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, and so forth... But why does he say that? That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always, or the eternal your God always. So here's another question. For those of you who have been keeping the Feast of Tabernacles for several years or several decades, what lesson have you learned regarding fearing God Coming to have a greater respect, a greater knowledge of God, a greater reverence for God. What exactly have you learned? Because if that is the lesson, if that's what we're here for, is to learn to fear the eternal, our God, always, then we ought to be able to say, well, this is what I've learned. So when you think back on last year, what did you learn? What have you learned overall as you have kept the feast many of us, for a number of decades. Well, there are a lot of lessons we can learn, but isn't it easy to say, well, I've learned a lot of lessons, but can we name any of those lessons? I hope we can. I know that in the 57 years, if I live long enough to keep this 2020 feast, and those 57 years, I've learned a few lessons that I'd like to relate two specifically, just two. I mean, there are others, but there are two specific lessons that really stand out in my mind of things that God has taught me. Usually, the hard way, uh, by, by learning things over a period of time, by experience, you learn certain lessons. And I'd like to pass two of those along to you at this time. The first one is that God is good. God is good. Now you might say well that seems pretty simple. But you know, it depends on how you grew up. Uh I used to listen to uh Garrison Keillor on <clears throat> Prairie Home Companion. Some of you are familiar with him. Uh he was an individual quite uh, uh liberal in his his moral values it seems like from things he said and and so forth. But nevertheless, he was a hilariously funny person. Sometimes you had to turn him off because he'd get a little bit uh, off base. But most of the time, it was just good, clean uh, radio, a live radio program. On Saturday nights, when we'd be coming back from services and sun had set, and we were able to listen to uh, Garrison Keillor. And he used to talk about Lutherans and how uh, he, he would joke about them because this was up in Minnesota, and a lot of lutherans up there and and how they they're a bit austere and stern and uh, the the wives when they make a nice meal uh, they, they begin apologizing for it immediately. Well, my family was not Lutheran by any means, but perhaps a little bit more conservative than some and I, I remember my mother taught me to save money. She never taught me how to invest or how to spend money. But when I would earn money, basically, it'd just be put into a a piggy bank and later on into a a bank. So I, I learned that you could save money, and that became very important for me. And when I kept the Feast of Tabernacles for the very first time, there was a certain liberation because I had set aside... The tithe that I was supposed to, actually not the first year because I didn't have it, but I took a certain amount of money aside. But after that, I, I I mean, I just took it out of my bank account first year because I'd only attended one Sabbath service and then the Day of Atonement and the next one was on the way to the feast. Uh, so I didn't understand all about second tithe. But when I did, I, I learned that I could spend that money for a nice meal, or some form of recreation, and not feel guilty about it, because it was spending the money as God told me to, to enjoy it. And so I, I learned that God is good. He wants us to enjoy the things of this life. In First uh, John 4, 1 John 4 and verse 8, it tells us that God is love. 1 John 4 and verse 8, uh, he says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And then he repeats the fact that God is love, down in verse 16. And then he says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? In this commandment we have from him that he is... He who loves God must love his brother also. So that's First John 4, verses 20 and 21. So God is love. But love is not just an emotion. Love is how we treat other people, how we, we go about those things. Um, over in Deuteronomy, back in Deuteronomy, the 14th chapter, once again, and verse 26, the latter part of it, it says, you shall eat there before the eternal your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household. So God commands us to rejoice during this time. Now that should not be equal to saying just uh, spend money. That's, that's you know, but God gives us the means to be able to have a nice meal with other people and to be able to share those things and to rejoice in that way. But it is not about just how much we spend but it's making sure that we do have sufficient to be able to keep the feast. And there are many people, and I think especially this year, that may need financial assistance that uh, we're going to help to be able to go to the feast, but they may not have uh, enough to do everything they want to do, but they can certainly keep the Feast of Tabernacles, and we want them to. And God commands us to rejoice. So the first thing, the first point that I've learned is that God wants us to enjoy the things of this life. It is not wrong to enjoy the blessings that God has given to us. Now, for you, maybe that was an easy lesson. Maybe you, maybe you didn't know God gave you that privilege. Maybe you just grew up in a way that uh, you lived that way. But for some of us, we had to learn that lesson. That there's a time and a place for everything. And during the feasts, God makes us just a little bit rich because we save 10% and we spend it during this, these, uh, you know, the Feast of Tabernacles, the last great day, but also the other festivals we can do so. So we have much more money for these festivals than we would have on a regular basis. And so God is, is uh, loving toward us. He wants us to enjoy life. Now the second lesson that I learned over a period of 57 years, is that God wants us to learn the same lesson, to have the same frame of mind that He has. In other words, that we should have outgoing concern. We should have love defined by outgoing concern for other people. And this is a a simple lesson in some respects. But I had to learn this lesson because when I started attending the feast, in many ways, I thought, it's about me. Boy, I've got this money. I can spend it. I can do this. I can do that. And over a period of time, I found that when I looked at what I wanted to do, it didn't always work out so well. And sometimes when I went out of the way to help somebody else, that maybe I wasn't that excited about doing it, but I thought, okay, well, I should do it. Those turned out to be the best moments during the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, I know some of you have heard this story, uh, but not everybody, so I'll tell it once again. Uh, there were three years that I kept the Feast of Tabernacles in Long Beach, California. That is not the greatest place for the Feast of Tabernacles, but it was the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the place that God chose to put His name there. And there are probably a lot of reasons for it, but nevertheless... That was uh, where we kept, uh, some of us kept it. Uh, Part of the student body kept it there at Ambassador College, and part were up in Squaw Valley. Now, Squaw Valley is a much more beautiful place, much nicer atmosphere, but some of us were assigned to keeping it in uh, uh, Long Beach, California. And I remember one year in this kind of dingy hotel that we had where a lot of the students were staying. Uh, I, I was assigned to a, a room with another fellow, and all we had was one bed. Now, it was a different world back then there, there was nothing going on here, but that was not the most comfortable uh, way to spend the Feast of Tabernacles at least at night uh, when you 've got some guy snoring and stretching out and you know and, and everything else it was It was not the best, but it was a Feast of tabernacles. But I don't remember whether it was that year or another year. I decided that what I really wanted to do was go sailing because I'd never gone sailing before. And so I saved up a little bit of money, and it was not that expensive. I think it was only like $20 to be able to rent a sailboat. And I gathered my crew together, uh, people who th- said they knew how to sail. One of them was from Kansas. That should have been a a hint right there, lived all his life in Kansas, and he probably sailed a prairie schooner more than a sailboat. He didn't know anything about it. But anyway, uh, we did have a young lady from California, and thankfully she knew something about sailing. But we got out there, and we were supposed to stay in the harbor, but we ended up going outside the harbor, out in the, the ocean itself. And all I could think of is, this is my uh, this is my money. I, I had to sign a contract there that if anything happened to that boat, I was responsible. And we got back into the harbor eventually and the sail tore from top to bottom. We lost our, our wind. I found out what it meant to be uh, have the wind taken out of your sails. You go by a much larger boat and you lose the wind and then you just drift and we were banging into yachts and expensive yachts and one thing, another. And we got back and the... Uh, the, the owner uh, of the boat was was very kind. He said, "Well, the sail was, was needed to be replaced anyway, so he didn't charge us." But my wonderful experience—that which I went there for, which I basically had the idea, come hell or high water, this is what I'm going to do this year—makes for a nice story today. But it wasn't a very pleasant experience then. But then a couple of us took out, uh, we, we we got dates, and we invited a couple of older ladies. Uh, to dinner, and i won 't go into all the details, but to say that it was it was the highlight of the feast. It was not what I would expect I, We kind of did it out of duty, okay, but it turned out to be wonderful, and that was a lesson for me i I learned that lesson I, I hope i I never forget that lesson, but I have seen year after year after year that the most enjoyable part of the feast is not always what we plan. in in terms of what is good for me, what I want to do, but how we share it with others and when we give to others. You know, that shouldn't surprise us because in Acts 20, verse 35, it says, "...it is more blessed to give than to receive." And Paul was quoting Christ from some unknown source there. "...that it's more blessed to give than to receive." That is a lesson. That is God's way. He is concerned for us. And we need to be concerned for others. And that's a powerful lesson that we can learn. And we sometimes have to learn it the hard way. As I would say, I had to learn it the hard way. It was, it was a process over a period of time. In Luke the 14th chapter, Luke 14, we have a passage that really fits for the Feast of Tabernacles because we're talking about a feast. And here we have in Luke 14 and verse 12, Jesus said, also said to him who, in, uh, who invited him, he was invited to a feast, he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, uh, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Now, Jesus wasn't saying you can never invite your family to be with you, or your close friends. But the emphasis here is on looking past those who are just our close friends. He says, but when you give a feast, now we are at the feast, we are able to take people out for a a festive meal, or maybe we have a condo unit and we're going to have a barbecue and... uh, have a dinner in some way. He says, But when you give a feast, when you give a feast, notice it is giving a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. Invite those whose personalities may not be as exciting as others, or maybe they are exciting. you just don't know the people that are there. Sometimes it is someone that we would not relate to immediately that we become the closest of friends with because we find out that we have something in common. We, we have the same understanding of where this world is going and what the purpose of life is. And sometimes it just takes a little bit of effort to stretch ourselves in that way. And so these are the words of Jesus Christ. Are we going to keep them or are we not? He says, when you give a feast, he says... Uh, "...invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just." And I would say that you will also be repaid in a positive way even in this life. Remember that Jesus, when He talked to His apostles, and they said, what's in it for us? He said, well, you know, you're going to have... Uh, you know, a hundredfold of this, that, and everything else, and then eternal life. So it's both in this life, but in later on. But His, his focus here is on the time to come and the resurrection of the just. God is going to remember how we conduct ourselves in that way. Have we learned the lesson of love? Do we fear Him enough to stretch ourselves and do those things that He wants us to do? You know, if we're here for the right reason, I think most of us are, I I really do. I think that we we have lessons to learn, but we come here because God tells us to come here, and this is a highlight of our year. Uh, If we're here for the right reasons, this can still be the best feast ever, even though it may not have been your first choice of locations, even though... Uh, it's going to be smaller in many cases, although much larger than some of our people around this world. Many of our people, you know, many of our people go to the same place year after year after year with the same people, and they, they 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 don't have the opportunity to do that. The things that many of us in our rich Western nations have the opportunity to do. And I hope we'll think about those things. But if we come here with the right attitude, if we come here to learn. God's way of love and outgoing concern, to learn to fear Him always, this can be our best feast ever. I say can be because I can't guarantee you're not going to get sick. I can't guarantee a lot of things. But I do know that it can be certainly one of the best feasts ever, if not the best feast ever, if we approach it properly. This feast pictures in advance mankind's golden age if we look forward to that time, think about it when there will be no more injustice in this world, no more violence, no more anarchy, no more people tearing things down or shooting people or raping people or all the things that happen in this world. All that's going to come to an end. And you and I are going to have the opportunity to help bring it about. What a wonderful time we're picturing. And you're going to hear numerous sermons describing that future. Uh, What is more encouraging than the meaning of the last great day? I When we think about it, what can be more encouraging? To give us hope for our unsaved relatives who uh, just never were called, obviously, by uh, the things that they understood. Or to call people all over this world You know, when I travel to China, I have in the past, I like the Chinese people, maybe because I don't know them that well. When I travel to Thailand or South Africa or any place else in the world, the Philippines, I I find that there are wonderful people, there are human beings everywhere on this earth that are like you and me. They have the same hopes, the same desires. And to be able to bring the truth of God to those people... And to be able to see the whole world celebrating the Sabbath every week and the festivals as they come around. What a wonderful world that's going to be. And certainly when we look at the last great day, especially when all those people have ever lived and died without ever understanding the truth, maybe dying early because of war or because of murder or any number of things, they're going to come up out of their graves. And we'll talk about that on the last great day. But what a wonderful truth that God has given to us. God wants us to rejoice in this eight-day period as He wants us to rejoice in all of His festivals. He gives us this as a wonderful gift. And He wants us to learn about Him and also to learn some things about ourselves. Sometimes in a positive way, sometimes through mistakes that we make, But even then, it's positive if we learn the lessons. He wants us to learn about Him to come to reverence and value the things that He values. In short, we must learn to value the things that God values. That's what we're here for. So this feast can and should be a life-changing experience. And I hope for you, it'll be the best feast ever.